0: Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham.
1: We do welcome you to the Lone Star Podcast. This is the Rabbi, the Pastor, and the Dads of Graduates Week here on the podcast.
2: (laughs) And I think that, uh, Pastor, that's what both of us are focusing around right now, the fact that we have children... Graduating from high school, it's always a uh, momentous and a time to give thanks to God and a time of uh, reflection, and it's its, it's at times all-consuming.
1: We say thank you to God for them and pray blessings upon them as they move into the next chapter of their lives. Let's move into this week's Torah portion. It comes, again, from the book of Numbers, chapters 13, 14, and 15, The Hebrew title for this week's parashah is shlach. It means to send, and it's related to the word shiloah. The pool of Siloam is a famous story in the New Testament, Rabbi. Jesus healed a man in John chapter 9. The pool of Siloam, he healed his blindness, and the word means sent. And what Jesus did in John 9 was send him to the pool of Shiloh, the pool of Siloam. And so it's the related word to talk about God sending through Moses sending spies into the promised land, but the word is the same, John 9 in the New Testament, Numbers 13 here, the word is sent, and we have the idea that God sends us on missions to carry out his kingdom work.
2: Absolutely, and here it's very interesting, uh, because as you analyze it, when you actually get to the actual use of the word uh, in in our portion, uh, God says to Moses, Shlach lecha anashim, send for you, these men to be spies, and it's a puzzling terminology, because God should just say, send the men. Why is he saying, send for you? And many commentaries point out God doesn't need spies to go spy out the land. He knows what's there. He's God. And uh, if you look later on in Deuteronomy, when Moses retells the story of the spies, he actually adds more information that the people themselves asked to send spies, they wanted more information. And God tells Moses, "You choose. Uh, if you feel that this is the right thing, you do that. Uh, choose the right men. Uh, but this is not something which I'm commanding you or ordering to you, you to do. Uh, but this is if you choose. This this goes back to that theme of God not interfering with people's free will. He might uh, send messages and, and try to inspire people one way or the other, but he gives us the freedom to choose. And he's given Mo- Moses that freedom over here to start this portion."
1: Of the 12 tribes, they were each supposed to send out a leader or a representative to go do a spy mission or a recon mission of the promised land. And as you say, the Lord knows what's there, and the people could have trusted the Lord to... Send them into the promised land without this intel, but they wanted the information about who was there, who currently lived in the land. I guess we should remind our listeners that the people of Israel have been outside the promised land for over 400 years now. They were enslaved in Egypt for about 430 years, and now they're coming back, headed across the Sinai Peninsula, heading northeast to the promised land and so other people groups and these are the Canaanites and all the different ites the different people groups that have taken residence in the land and the people of Israel are traveling there and you have the Amalekites the Hittites the Jebusites the Amorites all under the umbrella term of people in the land of Canaan the Canaanites and the people wanted to know who the enemy was and Rabbi I think that's always our natural temptation okay, God, you want me to go to this college, you want me to go to this new job, you want me to move to this city or this country, and I could go by what you might call blind faith, but I really want to know what I'm getting into. It's really a demonstration of a weakness of faith that we can't trust God without finding out information on our own.
2: Yeah, it's it's clear from the Bible that it's human nature, uh, that we need to, and this, by the way, plays also into... Just people in general saying, you know, give me proof of this, give me proof of that. In today's world, you have a Bible, a book from God where, where we're being told things that happen The people looking for scientific evidence and, and archaeological evidence and, and looking for in history books. It's part of our need, I'll say, to be in control. We don't want to be completely dependent on God. There's something inside of us that fights against that because uh, human beings don't want to be uh, so dependent. We want to have that control, and, and it's ego, and it's also resistance to such a strong divine power above us. And that you see playing out over here. I mean, here God has promised you this land. He's done all the miracles up until this point. Yet the people still feel the need to be in control. And uh, that's certainly one lesson we can learn uh, before we even get to the catastrophe that happens with the spies. Just the the amazing element of human nature, which is, which is shown to us here, and how much we have to try to fight against that.
1: I'd like a little Hebrew lesson in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16. We have the 12 tribes that are listed and the representative from each one. And it says in verse 16 these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So you have Hoshea ben Nun. Moses changes his name from Hoshea to Joshua. And it seems that the name Hoshea means he saves, Joshua means the Lord saves. And one commentary tells me this is probably the first Israelite name in which the Lord's name was included in the name. So talk about Moses giving him a new name, please.
2: Yeah, so that last point is exactly right. The Hebrew letter Yud is added to his name, and that creates a scenario in the very beginning of the name where we have the Yud and the He, which is a part of the four-letter divine name. And Moses is clearly adding that power of God To Joshua. And our commentaries talk about that God, Moses, wanted to make sure that Joshua was successful in this mission, that he wouldn't fail along with the other spies. Joshua was his primary student, and he had a love for him and was looking out for him. Uh, But you do see two things. You see the power of names, that's for sure. And you do see the power of having God added to your name uh, as well, something which became very commonplace. Now, we do have in the name Israel uh, that was used for Jacob. Israel, you do have L at the end, which is God. Um, but this is going to be the beginning of many, many prophets and stories that we have in Kings and throughout the Bible of people where you see the Yud being involved in people's names, and that's the name of God being added. And it's really amazing to see that Moses takes that moment uh, to give Joshua that power.
1: And our Christian audience might see that there's a relationship between the name Joshua and Jesus. That Jesus, his Hebrew name, that we sometimes hear him called as Yeshua. And there's a related name there. So the power of names is very important. And Joshua becomes one of the 12 spies, 12 people. They're sent on a mission. They travel about 250 miles north. They leave at the end of July, according to the way the crops and the harvests are done. You can put in the seasons. They leave at the end of July. They come back in the middle of September. It's a 40-day mission, a 40-day spy assignment, which will be related to the 40 years coming soon. And they travel a long way. They cover lots of territory, spying out all these different people groups. And they start from Kadesh. And then they go through the Negev, the southern desert. Then they go into the northern hill country that we might call the land of Galilee today. And their mission was to determine the nature of the land. What kind of crops were there? What kind of water and food was available? But also to determine the strengths and weaknesses of the people who lived there. Could they defeat them militarily? Now that is a statement of dependence upon human strength rather than dependence upon the Lord to provide. But that was their mission. And one of the places they go is Hebron, the famous place even today where the patriarchs are buried, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, the burial place of the patriarchs. So shouldn't that have been a reminder that they were coming back to the land that God had promised them because this was the place where their forefathers were buried.
2: It's actually quite remarkable. Uh, this is actually in verse uh, 22 in chapter 13, where it specifically, as you said, Pastor, mentions that they came to Hebron. And you'd think that they'd go to Hebron and they would uh, mention something about the patriarchs and patriarchs uh, who are buried there. And all it says in the verse is that they noticed these children of giants uh, that were buried there? I'm uh, sorry, that were living there, and it, it's quite amazing how you could be in a city where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and 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 Sarah are—they're all buried—and you notice the sons of the giants. And and this is a, a lesson for life of you. Two people could be looking at the exact same thing, and one sees the positive, want the negative. They're in a place where they have so much inspiration and, and yet they notice the negative. I mean, this is the story of Israel today. Uh, people see you know, the story of Israel and instead of seeing prophecies coming true and incredible and human rights and justice and democracy and all the good that it's doing for the world, people will harp on some negatives that they see. And, and this is literally the story that's happening right here uh, where instead of noticing that the spiritual forces, uh, they focused on the physical giants that were in front of them, and that led them uh, to speak negatively about Israel.
1: The next verse of chapter 13 is verse 23. They came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. And that has become a very famous art piece or symbol that the two men carrying the the big huge cluster of grapes and uh, my wife has a statue in olive wood of this thing but that's a very famous scene and it's a symbol a visual of what god called the land flowing with milk and honey
2: absolutely and this is uh you know as we continue analyzing the spies and and trying to bring lessons to our lives they did be positive in the land uh, they saw these fruits. They saw how beautiful it is. They saw how productive they could be there. And yet, they were able to focus on the negative. So it's, it, again, uh, a bewilderment. Uh, and you have the other good spies who see these things and say, this is ridiculous. This is God's blessing. This is the most incredible gift you could possibly have. Uh, but again, you just see that human nature of, of the ability that we have to focus on negative things, even when we have such positive daring might add us.
1: Let's go to verse 25 there of Numbers 13. They returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. We said from late July to the middle of September, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation and the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, Verse 27, thus they said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, next verse, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and moreover, we saw the descendants of Enoch living there. So they said, it is a land of blessing, and God has promised it to us but we're not strong enough to take it on our own. What a sad statement, and we're all guilty of listening to God and then figuring out how we can do it on our own.
2: And these were also, uh, I need to emphasize, these were great people. These people that Moses chose, you go back to the beginning of the portion, it talks about them being leaders of the people. So it's not common people who fall to what just described pastor, but even the leadership uh, that was able uh, to fall to that. And it's very sad. It's scary, actually, and something we all have to be on guard for. I will tell you that there are some commentaries that, you know, they they really grapple with this to figure out how could this happen, how could it be. They actually say that the people were very nervous, uh, these leaders. Here they were in the desert, and God was providing everything for them. They had the manna, they had the clouds of glory, they had the pillar of fire, and everything is taken care of for them and now they have to go into the land of Israel and all of a sudden real life begins. Working, agriculture, uh, warfare, and they didn't want that. They not they wanted to continue in this supernatural existence without even realizing it subconsciously that led them to see the land in this negative way, which means we have to be so in tune to ourselves to recognize that there could be subconscious forces at work which cause us to look at the negative instead of the positive, uh, cause us to see things in darkness instead of seeing the incredible light that's in front of them. And that's part of knowing ourselves, uh, what we call in Hebrew, cheshbon hanefesh, really doing it soul-searching and understanding what's at work inside of us to make sure that when we see things, we see God. To make sure that we see the positive and our people who live as people of faith uh, should live, and therefore, this story is one continuous verse after verse showing us how these men these great men fell. And they should, it should serve for us to uh, be lessons for our lives. And yes, we can also put it into the perspective of Israel, that we live in a world where people are willing to see so much negative and who knows what self-interest and what subconsciously is driving them. But we have to be people of faith who, who open our eyes in the proper way and see things from the proper lens to see God's hand at work here.
1: As we continue to look at Numbers chapter 13, I want us to look at Verse 27. This is the report that the spies returned with. We went into the land where you sent us. It doesn't say where God sent us. So is that a simple grammar and it's not a big deal? Or is this a statement of we're only doing this because the people pressured us or Moses pressured us. We're not doing this to fulfill God's assignment.
3: I think it's a very good uh, deduction from the words. And I think that they're realizing that things aren't going so well. And this is, again, human nature putting blame on someone else instead of uh, really recognizing that maybe you have something to own up to and even own up to in the face of God. So they're sort of removing this from the realm of God and putting it completely in the realm of the human and actually placing blame on Moses.
1: And one statement of great courage is verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. And he fought against the popular opinion. He stood up and said, let's obey God. Let's trust God. Don't listen to all the negative people. And unfortunately, the next verse, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. And they gave out to the sons of Israel, verse 32, a bad report. The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And the people whom we saw are men of great size. And what happened, unfortunately, negativity was contagious. Instead of faith or positivity being accepted by the people, disbelief and lack of faith was contagious. And the crowd listened to the negative spies.
3: And we actually have a tradition, by the way, that this took place um, on the date of the ninth of Av, the Hebrew month of Av, which ultimately becomes the date when the temple uh, is destroyed, both temples. And God basically says to the people, you cried for nothing on this night. This was no reason. You just accepted this negative report. Now I'll give you a reason to cry, and that's a day of tragedy. Uh, for the Jewish people, but it's unbelievable to see, not unbelievable, but we know that this is the way the world works, but it's sad and tragic to see how the masses can just be lured into a belief about anything. All you need is you know, charismatic leaders, and they come back with a report, and people just buy right into it. And this has catastrophic results for that generation, uh, just buying into the negative things that the people said about the land, as opposed to accepting what God had told them.
1: When we get to chapter 14, verse 1, as you mentioned, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And then we get to verse 2, and it's really a sad story for me. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. It had been better for us if we had returned to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And so there's so much sadness there, so much lack of faith there. Really, it's something where they say, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Because they say in verse 2, maybe we should just die in this wilderness. Well, guess what? That's going to happen to this generation because they're going to wander around the desert for 38 more years before they get to enter the promised land. Their actual complaint or their sarcastic or their griping remark is what's going to actually come true.
3: And we actually see that repeated in other places in the Bible as well. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you say. And that's exactly what happens to them. They get, for the 40 days that the spies were in Israel, they get 40 years in the desert. Now, instead of just marching into Israel and taking our inheritance, uh, the next generation is going to have to do that. And uh, it's nothing short of a tragedy. There's no other way to view it. but But the Bible includes negative stories so that we can learn from them. That's why they're there. It's not to bash uh, the earlier generations. The idea is for us to learn from it and be on guard to make sure that we are people who are truthful and faithful to God and don't pray all of the failings that led to this tragic mistake.
1: Verse 4, I just read it. Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Verse 5 of Numbers 14, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly, of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Verse 6, the two positive reports from Joshua ben Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to the congregation saying, the land which we pass through is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And it's sad to read verse 10, But all the congregational said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And we'll talk about what the Lord says in a second, because it's powerful. But the reaction to the call to faith, the sermon about believing God was they wanted to stone them to death.
3: Again, to see people fall to this point. Here you have leaders that are trying to inspire you. And again, Pastor, we know this throughout history in all faiths. There were spiritual leaders who are trying to inspire the people, and they either have threats to their lives or even lose their lives uh, for doing that. And this goes back to this story right here. Um, and God has to you know, step in. And and stop this from happening, or else people were actually going to do exactly what they say.
1: So you get to verse 11 of Numbers 14, and it's, it's a tragic verse. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And he says, I will make you, speaking to Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, this is a troubling theological thought because we know God is a covenant keeper. We know that he can see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, and he knows what's about to happen, yet he makes what seems to be a threat that if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them or turn my back on them or something, break covenant with them. And Moses has to step up in verse 13 and say, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought your people up from the midst or from the place of Egypt. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O God, are in the midst of this people. For you are seen from eye to eye when your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you slay this people, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now I pray let the power of the Lord be great as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Moses now in verse 19 prays, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your chesed, your loving kindness just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And it's weird, Rabbi, that Moses has to convince God, which we cannot do that. We can't convince the omniscient creator to change his mind. But that appears to be what Moses is trying to do. God, don't be so angry against your people.
3: This is where you again see the greatness of Moses. You see his humility. You see his dedication to the people. And that's why he's called Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher. Uh, He stood up for us. He wanted to save us. God said, I can move forward in other directions. But a great leader uh, is loyal uh, to his people, is dedicated to his people, and also believes in them, believes that they can do better. Now, it's true that Moses uses arguments that are not necessarily related to the people of Israel, and he's talking about what it will look like to the outside, which also shows you that he's concerned about the glory of God. He's concerned about sanctifying God's name, and that's what makes him the spiritual leader uh, who is able to have this super close connection to God. So on both levels, you see Moses' greatness, his commitment to his people between man and man and his commitment to God between man and
1: God. So let's ask the question about modern-day believers. You trying to live for God, me trying to live for God, our listeners trying to do that. What lesson on prayer or lesson on repentance or lesson on representing our people before the Lord. What do we take from this action and these words of Moses?
3: Wow, we see this in this case and in other cases in the Bible as well, how he took this on his shoulders after the golden calf, in other cases where he really believes that he has the power as the leader to influence God. And this just shows us about the power of prayer as well, that if you are passionate, if you believe, if you are dedicated, you can influence uh, the will of God, and you can actually uh, change things. And it shows uh, the responsibility of the leader uh, to be in that kind of a position, and also just teaches each individual about the power of prayer. And This is something which, you know, we talk about this all the time, that we can have differences in our theology, uh, but there are certain elements that people of faith, of all faiths, share. And this, the power of prayer, and uh, the uh, need for leaders to pray for their people, uh, is something which I'm sh- I know we definitely share.
1: In the New Testament, if you were to go to the book of James chapter 5, and you would read verse 16, it says, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Other translations say the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So this is a call to prayer. It's a call to trust God and to Desire that the name of God be honored, that the character of God be preserved. And so Moses has a multifaceted prayer. It's God, I want you to protect your people. I need you to forgive them for their disobedience. I want your name to be proclaimed among your people. I want your name to be proclaimed among non Jews, the other peoples of the world. There's a lot to this prayer of Moses, and I think it relates there to that verse from James five sixteen, the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much.
3: Very much. And, and, and we do have in our tradition a lot about the prayers of the righteous and of the leaders. Uh, I actually, I don't want to say I shy away from it, but I like letting everyone feel empowered to pray and, and not to rely on the rabbi, on the priest. We have to take control of that, but there certainly is that that element that you're talking about, the power uh, that the righteous have. And we certainly have people who go to righteous people and ask them for prayer. And we certainly believe that given their closeness to God, that they do have uh, a a special power of prayer. And this all starts going back to the story of Moses.
1: But we have to remember that we are the creation. He is the creator. We really can't tell him how to change his mind or what to do next. So we have to trust in his sovereignty and his wisdom over the whole situation. And so when we read Numbers 14, verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And then it says, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet they put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn to Morrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So God says, you need to go back. You have to retreat here. And I'm going to listen to your prayer, Moses, to forgive the people. And I'm going to keep my covenant of giving them the promised land. But there is a consequence for lack of faith. And that is this generation who said, I wish we would just die in the desert. You're going to get to die in the desert.
3: Here you see uh, two elements uh, the way I see it. First of all, God mentioning, you know, how many times are you going to test me? You see that there is a patience. We have a tradition of God wants to give people a chance to repent. He wants people to come back to him. He's not quick to punish. Uh, But then at a certain point in time, the punishment has to come, and the punishment is very direct. It relates directly to their sin. You don't want to go to the land of Israel? Fine. You're not going to go to the land of Israel. You, You mentioned that Uh, you'd rather be somewhere else than where I want to take you, well, things aren't going to work out the way you planned. And we call that mida k'negan mida. It's measure for measure so that other generations can learn uh, from the punishment. So the Bible is filled with both rewards and wonderful things, but also the consequences of sin and the tragedy of, of people's failings.
1: And the message from the Lord continues in the latter part of Numbers 14. Verse 28, "'As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men.'" Verse 30, "'You shall not come into the land which I swore to settle to you, except Caleb and Joshua. But your children,' verse 31, "'I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you rejected.'" 32, "'As for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness.'" Verse 33, your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Verse 34, according to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you shall know my opposition. So we see the severity of punishment for unbelief that The younger generation will be the ones who see the promised land, who see God keep his covenant. The older generation, the leaders who should have been calling people to trust God, will suffer the consequence. They will not enter the land. The two spies who were obedient, Caleb and Joshua, they will get to see the land. And then you get to see the math. A trip from Egypt to the land of Canaan, the promised land, should have taken a couple of weeks. And we ask, why did it take 40 years? Now we know, one year for every day you didn't trust me. And those
3: 40 years, I mean, you talk about a change in plans in terms of how they were supposed to just go right into that land and and march right in. But there are commentaries that explain that don't think that this is just punitive. This wasn't God being angry and just randomly saying this. Once they showed this lack of belief, they weren't ready to enter the land, even the next generation, and they needed 40 years of God caring for them, of God giving them food, of God doing uh, clear miracles for them, and that would give them the level of faith necessary to enter the land. So it is punitive, but it's also constructive. That's the way God works and His punishing, and you see that over here as well.
1: Later on in Numbers 14, the men who were the negative spies, they were punished with, verse 37 says, they died by a plague. But Joshua and Caleb remained alive. And then what happened in verse 39, the words of Moses to tell them why this happened, what the consequences were. You didn't trust God. We're going to suffer for it. And so what do they do in verse 40? In the morning, they rose up early to get to the ridge of the hill and says, here we are. We have indeed sinned. We will go up to the place which the Lord had promised. And Moses said, why are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, lest you be struck down before the enemies, for the Lord is not among you. The Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there, and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill. Neither the Ark of the Covenant nor Moses left the camp. The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. And that finishes chapter 14. And so they wouldn't trust God to go into the land at the beginning. Punishment comes for their unbelief. They get the punishment, including their leaders die from a plague, and they say, well, now we'll go. And God said, no, this is not my plan anymore. I told you to retreat and back up, and let's start over again. They decide to go forward, and God's hand of protection was not there, and they suffer defeat.
3: You ask yourself, you know, what... What does it take for a people to recognize that God runs the show? What else do you need? And here you see, even after the punishment, even after all that's gone wrong, uh, people still have that reluctance. It's possible that it's actually as a result of it, meaning I'm wondering if the people felt like, oh, my gosh, we need to really dig in here and show that it's not God that's involved. We have to sort of support our heresy. At a certain level, and, and try to take it a step further. And it's just, again, human nature just digging a deeper and deeper hole for yourself instead of grabbing onto the lifeline that God gives you and, and pulling yourself up.
1: It's a very sad situation of unbelief at the end of Numbers chapter 14. But some good news comes in chapter 15. The Lord speaks to Moses in verse 1, and here in verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving to you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord. A burnt offering, a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or a will offering in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or for the flock. And we can get into the offerings in a moment, but I think that's a very important word there in verse 2. When you enter the land, not if, not maybe, But God renews his promise right then, when you enter the land, which I am giving to you.
3: The commentaries jump on that right away. And uh, Pastor, you've just uh, found yourself uh, amongst the biblical commentators of our past, because they all focus on that word, that God comes right away and reassures the people. Because you can imagine, they saw this happen, they see the punishment, and then they say to themselves, oh my goodness, we're doomed. We'll sin at some point, and we'll also lose uh, the, the benefit of Israel, and God comes in right away and says, it is going to happen. You are going to enter the land. Here are commandments, and uh, critical, critical that uh, he does that to reassure the people, and they are going to see God's love, God's love coming in and reassuring them, and he does that immediately uh, to make sure that they don't lose hope.
1: And then you have the the listing of the different kinds of offerings in chapter 15. You've got a Burnt offering in verse 3, you've got a free will offering. You've got a grain offering. You've got a wine offering. Then in verse 5, you've got another burnt offering. Then in verse 7, you've got the wine offering. Then in verse 8, you've got a burnt offering. In verse 9, you've got a grain offering. In verse 10, you've got a wine offering. What is the lesson here?
3: So here, God really brings the people right back to the lesson of what is going to keep them in in sync with him. It's not going to be something which they come up with on their own. It's not going to be some new age idea. It's getting back to what he's been telling them all along which is what they need and that is sacrifices, that is the ritual, each one with their own meaning, each one to be brought for their uh, specific uh, reasons, as the Bible uh, lays out here. But he goes right back to that. There's no other way to approach it. You can't change it. You just have to get back to the ritual. And that's why immediately on the heels of this terrible disaster, they get right back to the basics, which is the sacrifices, which brings them closer to God, following the rules that he lays out for them. That's the only way it's going to work. And that's what he's telling them over here.
1: One thing that I want our Jewish and Christian listeners to see as the rabbi and the pastor study the Word of God together in Numbers chapter 15, you get to verse 12. According to the number that you prepare, you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And if an alien sojourns with you or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. So what we have here are Jews and non-Jews worshiping God together right here in the book of Numbers chapter 15.
3: Yeah, this is something we've talked about before. We've talked about uh, the fact that certainly in our faith it's not limited to one faith over another. we about the Temple Mount being a place where all faiths can worship, and beautiful that concept of of on the one hand tolerance, uh, on the one hand coexistence, and worshiping uh, the same God. This applies. Specifically to monotheism. We don't have that uh, ability when it comes to pagan worship. Uh, that's something where we go the opposite direction. But when it comes to monotheism, we absolutely believe in that. And this takes us back to the political side, where we talk about Israel being a place where all faiths can worship. But that's something which we're so proud of.
1: So as we come to the end of this week's Torah portion, we get to the end of chapter 15, and it's a troubling story. And Rabbi, we need some help with this one. Numbers 15, verse 32. While the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody, a jail of some sort, because it had not been declared what should be done to him. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Rabbi, there are a lot of questions here. Like the guy obviously knew it was Sabbath because everyone else was not working. So he wasn't confused. This was deliberate. He went against the crowd. Then there's the chance there could have been mercy or forgiveness, and there wasn't. We've seen some stories that you've told us where a prescription for a punishment was given, but we're not certain if the punishment was ever carried out. In this case, it specifically says it was carried out. What a harsh punishment. Help us with this difficult story.
3: There are, there are some commentaries who actually uh, jump to the point that he wanted to show the people how serious uh, observing the Sabbath is, and therefore created the scenario for that to happen. But either way, uh, it's very difficult for our 21st century minds to understand how violating the Sabbath can lead to punishment of this kind. Why is it so significant? And all we can say to ourselves is, we don't understand, but boy, is Sabbath observant important. That's all we can do take from that. And I will tell you that you look over our history, there was a a line that once said that, you know, more than the people of Israel uh, keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps the people of Israel. That that having that one time a week of spiritual focus, of pulling away from the physical world, is critical to our very survival. And that's why the punishment is a lack of survival and death. It's to give that symbolism of your actual life does depend on you observing the Sabbath in the proper way. That's how important it is. And that's what we can take out of this. And and we do take it that way, and we do look throughout history. The Jews that have survived are ultimately, uh, you know, it's, it's through our, our, our perseverance and dedication to uh, fulfilling God's Word at all expense, uh, in all possible scenarios. And that includes primarily, uh, as a major focus, the, the observing of the Sabbath.
1: We all know the commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Shomer Shabbat, as it says in Hebrew, to guard the Sabbath. And we think that that is something that God doesn't value as much as he really does. And we don't take it as seriously as he does in some cases. And this story is a very troubling one because it seems so harsh. But the harshness indicates this severity and the sacredness that God gives to Observing Sabbath and giving time each week to worship Him. And it seems so difficult to reconcile the punishment with the crime. But saying, I don't want to give time to God. I don't want to devote my time to Him. I'm going to ignore God and do it my own way ends up with such a severe punishment. And that's the lessons, the difficult ones to learn from that portion of Numbers 15. And we get to the final few verses and we really change gears quickly. Verse 37, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they should make for themselves tassels. Tzitzit, it says in Hebrew. On the corners of their garments throughout their generations, they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after you played the harlot, In order that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So our Christian audience will have seen, and of course our Jewish audience is fully aware of the Orthodox Jewish men who have these strings, these tassels that are extended out of their belt or out of their shirt down below, and they're called tzitzit, and they are to represent the commandments of God, and that action that you see today is straight here from Numbers chapter 15. So Rabbi, what is the power or the importance of the tzitzit?
3: I like to uh, simplify things. And the most basic level is it's like a little rope around your finger to remind you that you're a person of God and the person who has to listen to what God says. That's literally uh, the way that I would say it. It's supposed to be a constant reminder. There's all kinds of meaning behind it in terms of why this number of strings, this number of knots, but the most basic level is just to remind people of God. That is the bottom line, and uh, that's why we wear them out. We wear them out to, to see them all the time, to see them in front of us, and that's the role that it plays. There are some who actually, if you come to Israel especially, you'll see it in some of the ultra-Orthodox areas, who actually wear it above their clothing. I mean, that's how much they take it seriously. Uh, but it is something which we teach our children at the earliest of ages. Our sons usually get their tzitzit when they're three years old. And it's a big part of know getting dressed in the morning. It becomes part of it. It's a blessing that we say, And it's exactly that point of just a constant reminder, like the little string that people put around their finger.
1: So we have covered the book of Numbers today in our Torah portion, and we've covered a number of chapters, chapters 13, 14, and 15. Lots of information here, starting with the 12 spies, 10 who were unfaithful to the Lord, 2 who were faithful, the judgment of that, the promise of 40 years in the wilderness, the strict punishment for violating the Sabbath all the way to the keeping of the promises and remembering the commandments of God through the tzitzit, Rabbi, a lot of territory we've covered today. Give us some final thoughts.
3: I think that, especially with the end that we see here, God is telling us that you have to always be vigilant. You have to be always on guard. Uh, The greatest of people uh, fell away from God and fell away from faith. And uh, there's no magic formula other than just listening to the Word of God, not following what our human side is telling us, but to follow what God tells us and follow that formula Uh, you're going to be okay if you don't there are consequences those consequences are to be constructive ultimately uh, but let's try to avoid even having to go to those and just do everything in our power to follow the word of god to stick with faith in god and if you do so then everything will be okay
1: i think today's torah portion is another example of the many times we read in the scripture where we learn the principles that blessing follows obedience and judgment follows disobedience And if we want our nation to be blessed, if we want our church or our synagogue or our family or ourselves to be blessed, God has called us to a life of obedience and faithfulness. And let's take the example of Caleb and Joshua, men of courage, men of conviction, men of faithfulness who trusted God, seeing the same circumstances that the unfaithful people did and yet they trusted God anyway. And so it is our privilege to study the Word of God together every week. We do apologize to our listeners. We've had some technical difficulties along the way on the call, but it's always great to study the Word. And Rabbi, Shabbat Shalom to you and your family.
3: Thank you, Pastor Shabbat Shalom, and let's all do our best to internalize these messages.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to Himself this week.